Seven Mile Road, good morning. Though we're scattered today, we are gathered in word and prayer to one hope, one faith, one Savior, one Lord, Jesus Christ. I've often said in a world of bad news, we need the good news of the gospel. And no one needs convincing of that, that we're in a time of uh, gloom and bad news. And I'm not the only one who's looking for good news in the midst of bad news. Massachusetts native and American actor John Krasinski, who was made famous by his role as Jim Halpert on The Office, he started a, new, a YouTube ch a news channel this week that focuses only on good news. In a tweet, he said, All right, everybody, how about some good news? Send me the stories that have made you feel good this week or the things that just made you smile. And through Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, people sent in floods of videos and pictures and stories of good news despite all the bad news that's surrounding us. And he took all of that, he compiled the best of the best, and he made an encouraging and uplifting video to give us all a break from the bad news. And when I watched the video, I, I smiled, I laughed, I, I even teared up. But after the video was over, in short order, that hallmark feeling quickly faded because I remembered we're still in isolation. The virus continues to spread. The death toll continues to rise. The economy continues to struggle. The medical community is exhausted and we haven't even reached the peak. See, the reality is, is our collective suffering won't be alleviated by a 15 minute video of good news. The weight of our sorrow needs something more. What we need right now is a gospel-fueled joy that anchors our soul during our season of sorrow and lament. That's why as a church, we've decided to spend the next several weeks walking through the book of Philippians. You see, Paul is uh, acquainted with sorrow. He's writing this letter sitting in a Roman jail cell. And though he experiences suffering and sorrow, his present circumstances don't rob him of his joy. And he learns, and he even writes this later in the, in the book, he learns the, the art of joyful contentment in the most unlikely of situations, and he challenges us to do the same. You see, joy is not pretending that everything is okay. It's not putting on a fake happy face. Joy is not um, uh, uh, whisking away to some imaginative world where things are different. Joy is looking sorrow in the face and saying, I have something that the deepest sorrow and the deepest uh, lament cannot take away. We need that kind of joy right now because that kind of joy is not tied to circumstance. It's tied to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Gospel-fueled joy is a deep commitment, regardless of circumstance, that provides stability, whether we're in sorrow or happiness. And that's what the book of Philippians is all about. So this morning, as we begin our journey through the book of Philippians, we'll be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and our text divides into three sections. First, in verses 1 to 5, we'll see a partnership in the gospel that produces gratitude. Second, in verses 6 to 8, we're going to see a partaking of grace that gives us confidence. And third, in verses 9 to 11, we'll see a prayer for growth that produces faithfulness. Now let's start together in verse 1. Paul writes this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
As we start this letter to the Philippians, it's important that we set the context. Like all communication, there are senders and receivers. There's a history, there's a relationship, there's a situation going on, there's a circumstance for writing. The, the Apostle Paul was a prolific church planter and pastor. He started over a dozen churches, and you can read about his church planting ministry in the book of Acts. And you can even see how this church in Philippi was started in Acts chapter 16. And as he begins his letter, he reminds the Philippians that they are now saints in Christ Jesus. We don't want to skip over these introductory remarks because they used to be sinners of this world. And now because of Jesus, they are saints. They are holy. They are set apart, not because of their own righteousness, not by their works, but by the grace of Christ Jesus. He reminds them of who they are. Church, never forget who you are. And then Paul writes in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. See, when Paul remembers the, the people of Philippi, his, his heart fills with joy. He's, he's sitting in his prison cell and he's beginning to write this letter and memories of his time in Philippi start to flood his mind. He remembered meeting Lydia at the riverbank and how the spirit of the living God opened her heart to the gospel. And eventually members of her own household believed and were baptized. He, he remembered how later after preaching the gospel in the city and rescuing this slave girl from exploitation and enslavement, that he was beaten and thrown into prison. But instead of con uh, complaining, Paul and Silas began to sing psalms and hymns and, and later that night an, an earthquake shattered the prison walls making it possible for them to escape but they but they chose to stay the philippian jailer feared that the prisoners would escape but instead of relying on their own comfort and their own needs and escaping paul and silas ministered to the philippian jailer later after he was released that same jailer invited them to dinner at his house to learn more about their unshakable faith. You see, the jailer saw Paul and Silas's faith, and he asked how he too could be saved. And before they left Philippi, a new church was born. And over the years, Paul visited this church several times. They became partners in ministry. They, they supported his ministry through prayer, through finances, and they even sent some of their very best to serve with him in his church planting ministry. And now Paul is writing this letter from a Roman jail cell. They've sent, uh, the, the Philippians have sent a young man named Epaphroditus with a financial gift to continue to support Paul in his ministry. And now Paul is sending a letter back to them to say thank you for their gift and to encourage him. You see, though Paul is in jail, though he's confined and potentially facing execution, he is energized and sustained by gospel joy. He reflects on their partnership in the gospel that he has with the Philippians, and it begins to stir up gratitude and thankfulness in his heart. Partnership here is that Greek word, maybe you're familiar with it, koinonia. We often translate that as fellowship. But when we think about fellowship, Christian fellowship, don't think about mere affection or affinity around a shared hobby. 
It goes much deeper than that. This word for partnership means a joint ownership. It's, it's participation, um, togetherness in a common cause or purpose. You see, the Philippian church had skin in the game. They gave of their time. They gave of their resources. They gave of their very own people. They were invested. They were active. They were involved in his ministry. They were joint owners. They didn't view Paul as their goods and services provider, and they didn't see themselves as consumers. They were partners together in ministry, committed to seeing the gospel go forward. And sitting in his prison cell, in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, uh, 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 contemplating whether or not he would live or die, Paul remembered their partnership in the gospel, and it stirred up gratitude in his life. It doesn't mean that Paul enjoyed lockdown. It didn't mean that he put on a fake smile, but it did mean that he didn't let his present circumstance narrow his vision. He looked beyond the confines of imprisonment to remember all that he had to be grateful for. Friends, as we think about the season we're in right now, we certainly have reason for sorrow. We're missing the sweetness of gathering together. I'm having to preach to a camera right now. Events that we've planned and looked forward to both as a church and in our own individual lives have been canceled. We're confined and restricted. Some folks have lost their jobs. Some people are starting to feel the financial strain. And the stress that we've all experienced over the last few weeks is starting to take a toll. But what if we took a moment to just list out what we have to be grateful for? What if our present suffering, what if the, our suffering, the things that have been removed from our life, actually serves to highlight the things that we often take for granted? Gratitude in the midst of suffering doesn't mean we neglect our sorrow and grief. Rather, they go hand in hand. Gospel joy doesn't minimize our suffering, but it does allow us to endure suffering because we remember there's always something to be grateful for. Gospel joy produces a remarkable gratitude that gives us a broader perspective. It gives us hope. It gives us energy, that, and it can even bring healing to our sorrow. Gospel joy produces gratitude. Now let's look at verses 6 to 8 to see how partaking of God's grace can produce confidence in our lives. Look with me at verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul says that not only does joy produce gratitude, he says it can produce confidence. He says, I am sure, I am confident that the God who began a good work in you will see it to completion. This word for began means to inaugurate. It, 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 it separates out a decisive and deliberate act. 
It means that the momentum of initiation has begun. And then Paul tells us that God sees that momentum through to the end to bring it to completion. So what we have pictured here is God making plans for the beginning. He's making sure it's implemented well, and he makes sure that the work he has begun is executed and finished with precision. Friends, what God starts, he never leaves unfinished. God does not abandon his work or leave things unfinished. This is why sons and daughters of God have assurance and confidence of our salvation. From beginning to end, it is not about your or my ability. See, if salvation were dependent upon us, we would have no grounds for confidence. Why? Because we are fickle. Our desires easily become compromised. Our decisions are often selfish and narrow. We quickly lose interest and we direct our trust and our faith and our hope in created things rather than our creator. But Paul here is fueled by gospel joy and he reminds us that our confidence is not rooted or grounded in our ability and what we do, but by God's settled, decisive, and deliberate love who opens our hearts to be able to hear and receive and accept the good news of the gospel. And what God initiates, God finishes. Now you might be asking, what is our role in all that? What do we do? Well, Paul tells us we are partakers of his grace. What does it mean to partake? It means to consume. It means to eat and drink. And so God plans and initiates and invites, and we come to his table of grace as we are received and loved as sons and daughters. We partake of his grace. We don't cause his grace. We don't merit his grace. We simply receive it. And because God is in control of the beginning and the end, friends, it means that God is in control of the middle. That means everything we experience from beginning to the end is somehow a part of his plan to bring about his good work to completion. This is why we can have confidence. J. Alec Mateer says it like this, the assurance God gives us not only guarantees the outcome, it guarantees to every experience of every day. For in all things, God is putting the finishing touches, good news, bad news, difficulty, blessing, unexpected happiness, unexpected trouble. It all has a purpose. Concerning all such situations, faith affirms that without this, I would not be ready for the day of Christ. This is the immediate, practical, and strengthening benefit of the truth of Christian assurance. What is he saying? He's saying that Paul's prayer is fueled by the joy of knowing that God's life-transforming work will not be thwarted by present moments of suffering. In fact, it will be used by God to bring about his intended results. Everything from beginning to end, God is using it to bring about his finished work. That means this situation right now is part of God's now, how do we apply this to our current situation? It means we memorize 
and we meditate on verse 6 until we believe it in our bones down into our soul. When all we see is despair in our current moment, we need verse 6 in the storehouse of our soul to remind us that the good news and the bad news, the difficulty and the blessing, happiness and trouble, all of it has a purpose. Gospel-fueled joy produces a confidence, an assurance, a foundation for us to stand on as we remember that the God who has begun a good work in us is fiercely committed to seeing his children ready for the day of Christ. Gospel-fueled joy produces gratitude in us when we remember all that we have to be grateful for. And at the same time, when we remember that God is in control from the beginning to the end and everything in the middle, it produces confidence in us. Now, let's look at the last few verses as Paul prays for the Philippians' growth that results in a life of faithfulness. Look with me at verse 9. Paul prays, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is a prayer for spiritual growth and Paul prays for five things. First, Paul prays for abounding love. Now, when he, Paul talks about love, is he talking about that their love for God would abound or their love for others would abound? And the answer is yes. See, Paul doesn't specify which kind of love or which object of love because true love lacks neither. Now, imagine a desolate landscape with rocky, hardened, water-parched soil. Nothing can grow there, right? It's a picture of our heart apart from the love of God. And then God comes into our life and he tills up that hardened soil and he waters the ground. He removes all the rocks and then he plants a seed of love in our hearts. And now Paul is praying that this seed of love would grow more and more. And as we mature as Christians, we are to grow in our devotion and our desire for God and in our love and care for neighbors. Remember Jesus, when he was asked what is the greatest commandment, Jesus said to love God as the greatest commandment. He said the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said love for God and love for neighbor are the foundation of a well-lived life. This word for love here is agape, and it's that self-giving, devoted kind of love. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible describes this kind of love. And you can imagine that this is what Paul is praying. Paul is praying that the never stopping, the never giving up, the unbreakable, always and forever love would abound more and more in their life. Second, Paul goes on and prays for their knowledge and discernment. You see, to guide and support our love, Paul wants us to grow in knowledge and discernment undirected or misdirected love is very dangerous. That's why our love for God and neighbor must be guided by biblical wisdom and discernment. When Paul talks about knowledge here, he's talking about the things of God. That's why as a church we champion good, robust theology. Jen Wilkin, who's an um, excellent Bible teacher, often says, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. 
Our love of God, our love of neighbor is dependent on our knowledge of Him. If we don't know God, how can we love Him? If we don't know how God has a structured loving neighbor, how can we love our neighbors the way we're supposed to? And this word for discernment here refers to how we live and make our moral decisions. See, Paul's not just talking about head knowledge. He, he wants us to learn wisdom. Truth is meant to be lived out. Nothing, in fact, is truly known until it's moved from the head to the heart to the hands. And when we do that, Paul says, we are able to approve what is excellent. Our, our ethical system is well-grounded. When our love is growing and it's directed by the truth and knowledge and discernment of Scripture, we can live in accordance with what truly matters. Friends, often many times in our life where we see lack of maturity or lack of growth, it's because of ignorance. Willful ignorance without the desire to want to study God's Word and learn the knowledge of God. When you feel like you aren't growing in your walk, you have to at least ask the question, am I growing in my knowledge of Him? It may not be the only reason, but we have to ask, am I committed to growing in my knowledge of Him? Am I regularly taking in God's Word so that I might grow in knowledge of Him? Am I carefully making decisions about how I live out that knowledge in the daily habits of my life? What if we took this present moment this disruption to our normal routines to cultivate new rhythms of growing in our knowledge of God. What if, Seven Mile, we saw this season as a time to rethink how we live, the choices we make, and the decisions we make, our, our whole moral framework. What if we took this season as a time to recalibrate our lives patterned to the standard of God's Word? Now third, Paul prays for purity and wholeness. Paul prays for a comprehensive life of holiness, both inner holiness and outer holiness, a life that is pure and blameless. It's covering every spectrum. See, a life of purity is marked by pure motives, strong character, and a good reputation. It's a life that takes sin seriously. It's a life that takes God's word seriously. It's a life that recognizes and really believes that Jesus is really coming back at a day and hour unknown, and I want to live my life today as if today is that day. We live today with the end in mind. A life of purity and blamelessness is a life that doesn't settle for mediocrity. It doesn't settle for complacency. It's a genuine belief that God knows what I need and what I should want better than I do. And it takes the, the, the desires of the heart and says, I want to align them with your will. Fourth, Paul prays that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Paul prays that they would see the fruit of their labor. His prayer is that they, as they grow and mature and abounding love, as they grow in knowledge, as they prioritize personal holiness, that they would see the fruit of labor in their lives, that they would see the change and experience the joy of faithful living. 
Now, when you think about fruit, you think about this analogy of, of a tree. The, the seed of love is planted and it becomes a, a, a sprout and then a sapling and it becomes a mature tree that is able to bear fruit. That doesn't happen overnight. If you plant a seed today, it will not be a fruit-bearing tree tomorrow. This takes time. And so we have to be patient. But this is a prayer from God's Word telling us if we will grow in love, if we will grow in knowledge, we will grow in discernment and make personal holiness and purity uh, a priority in our life, that we will see the fruit of righteousness in our life that is given to us in abundance by Jesus Christ. Finally, Paul prays that all of it, everything in this prayer would be to the glory and praise of Christ. His prayer ends with a doxology. Paul prays that as their love for God and others abounds, as they grow into maturity, as their lives are filled with faithfulness and fruitfulness, that Christ would get the glory and praise due his name. What a wonderful prayer for growth. Despite imprisonment, Paul is so filled with gospel joy that he can't help but pray for the well-being of those he loves. Friends, we are in a season of suffering and trial. We can't change it. We can't control it. But what we can do in this season is lean into the grace given to us in Christ Jesus. What if we were to adopt Paul's prayer as our own and ask that God daily would cause our love to abound more and more? We can take this time to grow in knowledge and discernment. We can make personal holiness a priority, and we can, by faith, enjoy the fruit of faithful living. Seven Mile Road, it is right to mourn the loss of what we're not experiencing right now. It, it, is, it is right to feel the weight of uncertainty right now. But at the same time, it is right to feel the gospel-fueled joy that is ours in Christ. It's not either or, it is both and. Because the gift of God's grace, because we have Jesus Christ, we have a reason for real and genuine joy. Our gratitude is not contrived, it's real. We are grateful that our sins are forgiven and that we are truly made alive because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Our confidence really is unshakable because God who began a good work in us will see it to completion. And we can pray for growth in our life because God uses the good and the bad, the blessing and the difficulty to grow us into maturity. Let's make this prayer in Philippians 1 our prayer in this season. Let's pray together. Father, would you, like the Apostle Paul prayed, cause our love to abound more and more. Our love for you and our love for neighbors, would, would you cause, cause it to grow? And God, would you help guide that love with knowledge and discernment as we, as we uh, dedicate time and invest in knowing you through the scripture? And God, as we grow in knowledge of you and love, would, would you cause us to become pure and blameless in actuality, in real time. We know we have your righteousness declared over us, but God, would you cause us to grow in actual righteousness as you sanctify us and form us into the image of Christ. And God, would you use this season to cause your fruit to grow in our life? We want to see the fruit of a faithful harvest. We ask all of this to the glory and praise of Christ, in whose name we pray. 
Amen.